It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. The new job numbers are in. Unemployment has just gone down to 4.2%. It was 6.3% the beginning of the year when Joe Biden took over. So that would seem to be good news on the one hand. On the other hand, only about 200,000 plus jobs were created. And that's much weaker than was expected. Remember the previous month, it was something like 500,000 plus. So it's a kind of anemic jobs report, which could signal growing concern about the economy. On the third hand, these monthly jobs reports are kind of initial estimates, and they often get revised upwards or downwards later when more data come in. So we could see uh, that actually more jobs were created than just the 200,000. Wall Street was expecting a higher number. So this is why I'm glad I'm not an economist. But I do think, um, given that we are still mired in this pandemic, that 4.2% unemployment, not that bad. Now, then you get into the question of uh, wages and inflation and do people feel like their economic circumstances are much worse than they might have been. By the way... I'm really glad to see certain people posting now that more people have had a chance to see Get Back, the Beatles documentary, which I talked about at length uh, after I binge-watched uh, much of it over the weekend, to talk about the relationship, the, the this emotional bond between Paul McCartney and John Lennon when you see them playing together, sounding out guitar riffs and so forth. Uh, it's really something. And at the same time, you know, they went through a period after the Beatles' breakup where they were writing nasty songs about each other. And, you know, it was like a dysfunctional family. I mean, they loved each other, they hated each other, resented each other, were jealous of each other. Um, but, but, you know, these were guys who were writing songs when they were 15 and 16 years old and obviously never expected to get out of Liverpool, never expected to become the worldwide phenomenon that Beatles did become. Um, I know there's been mixed reviews on this. you got to love music and maybe love the Beatles to watch all the hours. Sure, it could have been edited more tightly, but on the other hand, when you get to watch them create these songs with just a few lines and a few words and how it grows into songs that are still popular, you know, half a century later, it's just flippin' incredible. Uh, Welcome to the Friday edition of the podcast. This is the point in the week where I say, hey, Sunday morning, Media Buzz, 11 Eastern on Fox. Hope you'll have a chance um, to watch that. We've got a lot of topics that we are going to cover, That uh, some of which you've heard here, some of which you've not heard here. Omicron will be one of them. Um, but before I sort of slide my way into the serious business here, I have another Cuomo story. And, you know, don't groan. It's not a Chris Cuomo story. It's an Andrew Cuomo story. Uh, the Justice Department, and this was a New York Post scoop, The Justice Department, the United States Department of Justice, is investigating sexual harassment allegations against the former New York governor. Uh, Cuomo, as you recall, resigned in August. He was going to be impeached by the New York State Assembly. Um, The New York Post got a hold of some state records from the State Controller's Office showing it had hired some lawyers to deal with the DOJ probe. And then uh, Andrew Cuomo's spokesman confirmed that the civil division of the Justice Department, this is not a criminal inquiry, is looking into this. And, and honestly, I don't really see why. I mean, on the one hand, you could say, look, it's Democratic administration in Washington, it's to DOJ's credit that it's looking into a former, you know, the 
who guy who was the most prominent Democratic governor in the country. But on the other hand, he's out of office. Um, there already is a criminal misdemeanor complaint against the former governor over uh, one woman who he is alleged to have groped. Um, and usually the feds step in when the a state or a city isn't doing the job. I'm not sure what the rationale here is. Uh, why would the federal justice department need to bring further charges? Um, I'd like to know much more about this. And, and I, you know, I'm somebody who's been incredibly tough on Andrew Cuomo, no choice but to resign 11 different women, the new details that have come out, not just about his brother, Chris, in when the state attorney general, Letitia James, who by the way, is running for his old job, you know, put out all those transcripts and, and videos and texts and emails uh, make a really, really strong case that this was not, you know, some uh, series of misunderstandings. But the reason for federal involvement, and we only know the bare bones here, kind of eludes me. All right, let's get serious here. Story number one, Omicron. Omicron will probably be story number one for some time to come. Uh, here is something that's a little bit concerning. Scientists in South Africa say Omicron is at least three times more likely to cause reinfection than these previous COVID variants, such as Beta and Delta. Uh, this was a preliminary study uh, looking at an analysis of 2.8 million positive coronavirus samples in South Africa, 35,000 of which were suspected to be reinfections. So the point here is that it's much more resistant to vaccination. In other words, if you're vaccinated, and if you're, you know, if you're double vaccinated or even you triple vaccinated, if you've got a booster, not necessarily the case in South Africa. Um, up until now, it doesn't completely and totally uh, uh, protect you from getting a breakthrough case, but if you do, it's very mild. Uh, nevertheless, three times more likely to cause reinfection, that's not great news. And I have a column today about all this. And the thing that I find depressing, the thing that I find really depressing is, um, you know, that we're mired in the same old partisan arguments. I think I talked about this a little bit yesterday. So you have, you know, Democrats blaming Republicans, Republicans blaming Democrats. Uh, Donald Trump has come out and say people won't get the vaccine because they don't trust Biden. Uh, Biden is calling for unity. He has taken certain steps. And by the way, there's another piece about international travelers. You know, I guess the technical term would be freaking out over the new restrictions by the Biden administration. Uh, because now you, you know, let's say you're off in some foreign country. You have to, you can't come back to the U.S. And people are worrying about being stranded unless you get a negative COVID test 24 hours before you get on the plane or train or in, in the car or whatever. And so what if you can't get the results that quickly? Uh, what if you get a positive result? What if you get a false positive result? Well, then you can't come back to America. I'm talking here about Americans who are overseas as opposed to foreign nationals trying to come to the U.S. Uh, so that is not great, in my opinion. Uh, let's go on to number two. You know, we're still feeling the aftershocks of the Supreme Court oral arguments on the Mississippi abortion law, the widespread journalistic consensus seems to be that that Mississippi law is going to be upheld probably by the six conservative justices on the nine-member court. Uh, and that would be 
a sea change because now SCOTUS will be clearing the way for a state to say, okay, we're, we're going to move it up to 15 weeks in terms of what we deem to be viability for the feeders, or when, at least when you're allowed to legally obtain an abortion, despite uh, the famous 1973 Roe ruling. Uh, and then what's to stop the next day from coming along and saying, well, how about 10 weeks? You know, in Texas, it's already six. It doesn't bar people from getting an abortion, but it enables the women themselves, the doctors, the clinics to be sued. And I'm sure that will get its own uh, Supreme Court test as well. Um, and so this is really, you know, to say that it's going to be a kind of a bombshell in the 2022 election is a severe understatement. So here's a piece in the Washington Post saying the Supreme Court argument. Remember, it's not even a ruling. We won't get the ruling until um, next June, probably. But, you know, uh, as Bob Dylan said, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind's blowing. Uh, this has accelerated an urgency among Senate Democrats to change the way the court operates. And let me just jump in here before I read anymore and say, I don't think this is going to happen. Basically, you have some liberal Democratic senators fulminating publicly about how terrible this is, but the steps that they could take, you know, this is assuming they could get, that Republicans wouldn't find a way to block it, that Joe Manchin would go along, um, are all pretty drastic. Uh, for one thing, they could expand the court. I mean, you know, ever since FDR failed in his court packing scheme, that has been seen as a kind of a non-starter. And if the Democrats somehow did do that, Republicans take over Congress, they can eliminate seats. Or maybe they add even more seats so they can get put more conservatives on after the Democrats have packed it with liberals. And so then you have a 20-person court. I mean, it, it, there is a point where it becomes untenable. Now, there's also an interesting argument about should um, the Supreme Court justices have lifetime tenure? Or would it be fairer to have a fixed appointment? Let's say it was eight years or 10 years or whatever, so that you know a president of either party couldn't just simply put on, let's just say, one or two or three justices, depending on how many vacancies there are in that president's term, and have those people serve for 40 years. You know, there's obviously a trend toward picking younger nominees so they can stay on the court roughly forever. Democrats, meanwhile, really hoping Stephen Breyer will retire, and so far he's given no indication that he's going to do that. So anyway, get back to the uh, senators who are popping off. Here is Senator Brian Schatz, Democrat of Hawaii, saying many of his colleagues have been reluctant to change the Supreme Court. They respect the separation of powers until now. And he said, in the wake of the uh, oral arguments over the Mississippi law, it's hard to watch that, and I did watch a fair amount of it, and not conclude the court has become a partisan institution. And so the question becomes, well, what do we do about it? I'm not sure, but I don't think the answer is nothing. Here's Elizabeth Warren. What happened uh, forces all of us to rethink our views about the makeup of the court. And she said, they've undermined confidence in the court, and force us in Congress to rethink how to build a court that the American people can trust. Now, it is true that uh, liberal Justice Sonia Sotomayor said there will be a stench if the court goes so far as to not only uphold the Mississippi law, but to overturn Roe, despite Brett Kavanaugh and others going before Congress and saying this is settled precedent, would they actually toss out Roe v. Wade? Um, and, you know, the underlying the democratic frustration and anger here is obviously what happened in the last year 
of Barack Obama's term when he was not even able to get a hearing in the Republican-controlled Senate on Merrick Garland. So Democrats regard that seat as stolen. And then, you know, a few weeks before the 2020 election, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, and Donald Trump is able to rush through um, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, who's, who's immensely qualified. But, you know, if McConnell's argument was, well, we can't really have this happening in the last year of a presidency, uh, and then it's okay to have it happen in the last month of a presidency, a little bit of intellectual inconsistency there. Um, now, here's the other side. Republicans contend Democrats are threatening to overhaul the high court solely because they dislike its opinions. Well, yeah calling that a dangerous attack on judicial independence. Uh, Republican Senator Mike Lee saying the uh, Democratic court packing bill is an act of arrogant lawlessness. And he has a point, too. I mean, nobody's hands are clean now, you know. The Democrats seem to think if they restore some kind of majority that's in favor of holding uh, women's abortion rights, that that's not the political position. The political position is what the Republicans are doing. But of course it's a political position. I mean, there's no way to get around the politics of this. Depending on your personal faith and ideology, you either believe that a woman should have the right to choose or you believe that abortion is murder and it should not be allowed in the United States of America. And by the way, that this business that I spoke of a second ago about the uh, uh, lifetime tenure, that would take a constitutional amendment, which would roughly take many years. I was going to say forever. All right, here's another opinion uh, from Rich Lowry, a longtime editor of National Review, writing in the magazine. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe and then the uh, comparable or the companion ruling, the Casey uh, case from 1992, uh, yes, the initial political reaction, he says, would be thermal and nuclear. In the bluest states, um, nothing would change. Red states would move to restrict abortions, but there's a good chance, he says, those measures will be popular locally. So it could be, says Lowry, that the decentralized nature of the American system with various state legislatures working their will in a messy patchwork befitting a vast, diverse continental nation comes up with an arrangement on abortion that is broadly acceptable to most people, if not necessarily morally or logically coherent. This might not be satisfying to either side, but it will be more democratic and sensible than looking to nine justices to, in their wisdom, dictate a policy from on high. Well, I can understand that argument, except then if you are a woman who believes in abortion rights or you feel that you need to get an abortion because of your life circumstances and you are living in Texas or Mississippi or Alabama or any one of a number of states um, that could be expected to either ban abortion if the Supreme Court ruling goes in a certain direction or severely restrict access to abortion, well, then you're putting the burden on on those women, many of them may be poor women, to somehow transport themselves to another state to legally obtain an abortion. And I just think, I mean, you know, transport it to the civil rights debate. Because that, that was the, 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 the Southern segregationists who did not want to be forced to integrate schools and so forth until, yes, Supreme Court, 1954, Brown versus Board of Ed. Uh, they said this was a matter of states' rights and those pointy-headed intellectuals in Washington shouldn't tell states what to do. But that meant that in lots and lots of states in this country, and it wasn't a zillion years ago, it was in the 50s and early 60s, um, blacks didn't have full civil rights until the Supreme Court stepped in. 
And then Congress stepped in with the Voting Rights Act and the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So if women should have the right to abortion, how can that be the law of the land in only half the country? If women should not be allowed to have abortions, how could that be only enforced in half the country? I mean, it seems to me that's where we might end up, but it's just I think it's just a... uh, an effort to justify the court overturning Roe. And I understand that if you're on that side of the debate, then that's what you think. But I mean, this patchwork state by state, what if it's county by county? What if it's city by city? It just seems rather unworkable to me. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number three, last night, the hour-long ABC News special about Alec Baldwin aired. I got to say, the thing that really, really, really turned me off was the packaging of it, the scary music, the, um, you know, it was almost like watching a Dateline show. And this is an absolute tragedy in which a woman lost her life. And it just seemed overly packaged by ABC. And it's happened so recently. And, you know, I have no problem with George Stephanopoulos interviewing Alec Baldwin. I thought Stephanopoulos did a very good job, very thorough in asking questions, including some skeptical questions. It was hard to watch because Baldwin was so emotional um, and at least a couple of points was crying or choking back tears. I mean, that's obviously is, as he said, the worst thing that has ever happened to him. At the same time, you know, he's a professional actor, so some people are saying, well, you know, this is a great acting job. I don't think anybody who watched that for an hour could think that this was pure acting on Alec Baldwin's part. But you can quarrel with what he said in an, in an effort to say that, hey, he, Alec Baldwin, is not legally responsible. So at one point he's describing how, you know, in that, remember, it's just a rehearsal, and it was... Um, Helena Hutchins, the director of photography, who said, okay, now point the gun as you would in the scene. And it ends up firing off live ammunition that takes her life. And he says, he says, I only cocked the gun and I showed it to everybody. Stephanopoulos, it wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Baldwin, the trigger wasn't, I didn't pull the trigger. Stephanopoulos, so you never pulled the trigger. Baldwin, no, 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 no. I would never point a gun at anyone and pull the trigger. Never. So I've seen some medical experts, uh, gun safety experts, since say, well, that's impossible. The gun couldn't misfire just from cocking the handgun. Uh, maybe he, it didn't, doesn't take much pressure once you cock it to, if your finger goes anywhere near the trigger for the gun to shoot off. Maybe Bowen didn't realize that he did. It is kind of hard to square how this happened. I don't think he's necessarily to blame for the live ammo being in the gun. He said, that's the question. That's what the investigators should find out. Who put the live ammo in the gun? Since obviously he didn't think it was and or wouldn't have even been handling it. And he went on to say, uh, I think back. I think, what could I have done? She, Helena, was someone who was loved by everyone who worked with her. I mean, even now I find it hard to believe. It doesn't seem real to me. This is a man in agony. And again, um, the investigation has to go forward. He denied, you know, there was a cameraman who wrote a letter before he quit and before this happened saying, uh, we are so short-staffed uh, that um, um, I'm worried about gun safety. 
Baldwin said that no one, this guy or anyone else, ever brought to him any concerns about gun safety. There was a concern brought to him about um, not having enough resources, for example, the crew having to stay in lousy, faraway hotels. And his answer there was, look, whenever you make a movie, I don't care if it's a Steven Spielberg movie, you, everyone's always trying to save money because you're trying not to have spending go out of control. So sure, we might have cut some quarters. It was a low-budget film, but he says no one ever raised gun safety with him. Obviously, investigators will have to talk to other people to see whether that account uh, holds up. Um, finally, he says... Um, I feel that someone is responsible for what happened, and I can't say who that is, but I know it's not me. Honest to God, if I felt I was responsible, I might have killed myself. Just the whole thing is just such a tragedy. Um, let's move on now. Oh, here's an interesting item, number four. Federal judge in Michigan ordering a group of lawyers whose names you will know. They include Sidney Powell, former Trump lawyer, and Lynn Wood, former Trump lawyer, or somebody who worked on behalf of the Trump stolen election claims, has ordered these lawyers to pay about $175,000 in legal fees to the state of Michigan and the city of Detroit, uh, essentially for bringing frivolous claims. This federal judge says that um, uh, had already ordered the group, including the two I mentioned, to be disciplined for their role in the lawsuit, which she called a historic and profound abuse of the judicial process. Turns out the city of Detroit reported spending $182,000 defending the case. So, you know, it's only in the most extreme or egregious cases that judges do this, that judges sanction lawyers who bring a lawsuit saying that this was so obviously trumped up or fake or uh, not fully checked out that they should have to pay the court costs. They should have to pay the other side's lawyers, or in this case, the government that had to, you know, go to court and go through the motions of having their own attorneys um, defend against what the judge determined were frivolous charges. So that is a setback uh, for those. I think Linwood argued like he didn't really do anything. It was really, and this was the Kraken lawsuit. It was really Sidney Powell, but, you know, what a mess. Story five, interesting piece here on Amazon. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Amazon was an online bookstore. That was it. Jeff Bezos went to Seattle, and he was trying to sell books uh, more cheaply and efficiently than the major chains, the Barnes and Nobles of the world. Uh, and it was an absolute revolution in the book buying business. Well, Amazon is still associated with books, but it's now a tiny part of this, you know, uh, international online commercial giant that has become. So this piece in the New York Times leads off with a guy named John Boland. He's checking the prices on Amazon for a science fiction thriller called Hominid. One seller wants $907 for this one book, um, $930 for Rocky Mountain Books, $987 for Open Range Media. Now, John Boland didn't need a copy. Boland wrote this novel and published it himself. It lists for 15 bucks. So he has filed a suit against Amazon to make the larger point. Um, his own imprint is called Perfect Crime, by the way. And he says, look, Amazon is great at selling stuff, but because of third-party sellers. It used to be Amazon itself would provide this stuff, but now it doesn't matter what you want. You want a washer-dryer, or you want a lamp, 
or you want a TV, or you want clothing. Sometimes it comes from Amazon. It has the Amazon you know, brand or label. And sometimes it's, you know, sellers that have been at least nominally approved by Jeff Bezos' company to peddle their wares on the Amazon site. So the suit was filed in Maryland, and it does sort of underscore how incredibly dominant Amazon is. It's the largest retailer outside of China. It's bigger than Walmart. Uh, now, Amazon is denying these allegations, saying, you know, it's trying to figure out why this book would be, somebody would charge $987 to buy this one book. Could be a good book, but not that good, right? Um, and even Amazon doesn't quite get it. It's almost like there's this neighborhood where people kind of do things, and Amazon doesn't know, you know, are there shady practices here? Is there price gouging? So this is interesting, a point made by the piece. It's just last month that the Justice Department sued to stop uh, a merger, actually takeover, from Penguin Random House, which itself is the combination of two different major publishers, stop that company from acquiring Simon & Schuster, which would create, you know, like the biggest U.S. publisher ever. Because the combined Random House, Simon & Schuster would have 27% of the market for new books. But Amazon has much greater control. Uh, By some estimates, as much as two-thirds of the market for new and used books is sold through Amazon and an Amazon subsidiary. So that's really interesting. All right, let's give you some more here, a little uh, extra bonus as we go into the weekend. Number six, Twitter has these new rules. Uh, that looked to me, as soon as I read about this, to be uh, you know, impossible to enforce. Well, here's a follow-up piece in the Washington Post. Neo-Nazis and far-right activists are coaching followers on how to use a new Twitter rule to persuade uh, the social media platform to remove photos of them posted by anti-extremism researchers and journalists. Okay, so this is even hard for me to explain, but... Under the new rules, which was posted like the same day that Jack Dorsey resigned, Twitter said it has a new private information policy that if your photo or video that you posted on Twitter was then posted by someone else without your consent, you can request that it be taken down. Um, turns out there's a woman, there's an anti-fascist researcher named Gwen Snyder. Um, her account was suspended just yesterday, after someone reported a 2019 tweet of hers showing photos of a local mayoral candidate attending a public rally alongside the extremist group, the Proud Boys. So in other words, journalists sometimes, you know, use pictures, publicly available pictures, to say, hey, you might want to know that politician X is hanging out with suspect person Y. Uh, Twitter later uh, said this is a mistake, shouldn't have done it. Uh, But Twitter's goal here is to curb the misuse of media to harass, intimidate, and reveal the identities of private individuals, which disproportionately impacts women, activists, dissidents, and members of minority communities. So like so many things in the social media universe, um, that sounds good, but now it can be used for good or evil, right? It can be used to protect the privacy of people who don't want their image splashed around, Uh, but it can also be used by extremists on either side. Um, So let's see here. Uh, The Post quotes a white nationalist as saying, due to the new 
privacy policy at Twitter, things now unexpectedly work more in our favor as we can take down Antifa. So it's a mess. And is every single person who is subjected to this going to complain to Twitter that the rules are violated? And does Twitter really have the staff or the inclination to have to rule on every single case? I don't know. But here's a related point uh, before we sign off here. Uh, tech columnist Kevin Roos, I think is very good, talks about Jack Dorsey leaving Twitter. He says it's part of a trend, and the trend is the tech moguls who founded these companies, you know what, they're getting kind of bored, and they're getting kind of fed up with their jobs, and they want to find new adventures. So when you look at this, Jeff Bezos, he just stepped down as the CEO of, of the aforementioned Amazon. Why? He wanted to fulfill his childhood fantasy of going to space, so he creates this Blue Origin uh, company, and he goes up on the first rocket. So that's what uh, Bezos is doing. He's going to spend more time on that. You know, obviously he still uh, owns the major chunk of Amazon, publicly traded though it is, uh, but he's no longer the CEO. Google's founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, stepped down a couple of years ago, and they've been investigating in futuristic projects like airships and flying taxis. I'd like to take a flying taxi. We'll see where that goes. Mark Zuckerberg is kind of the exception. He's still running Facebook, now called Meta. But this whole like pivot to the metaverse, which I'd like to see a dictionary definition of that, you know, looks designed to give him something more exciting to work on. And so if you look at it, you know, these Silicon Valley giants, they, you know, they used to be folk heroes and they used to be the exciting ones and they, all the cool kids wanted to work for Google or for Amazon uh, or for Twitter or for Facebook. But now, says Kevin Roos, they're growing tired of managing their empires, which are increasingly burdened by political controversy and hard-to-fix problems like misinformation and hate speech. They don't see an easy way out, and they're more excited by building new things than fixing old ones. So they're turning over their empires to these manager types and going off in search of new frontiers. Dorsey, for example, is obsessed with Bitcoin, and it looks like he will be getting more into the cryptocurrency game, which if I studied it for the next 10 years, I would not fully understand it. Um, and, you know, the piece concludes by saying, you know, it used to be fun. As, as recently as 2012, you know, you were a hero. If you were a social media guru, you got to hang out with Barack Obama. Uh, now, it's a pretty miserable job. Yeah, you're rich and famous, but you spend your days managing a bloated bureaucracy and getting blamed for the downfall of society. Instead of disrupting and innovating, you sit in boring meetings and fly to Washington so politicians can yell at you. That might get old. I could see that. So look, these guys all have zillions of dollars. They can do what they want. And some of them are choosing to found new companies, you know, go into outer space or just find something else to do and let somebody else take on the thankless jobs of running social media companies that just are never going to make everybody happy. And look, a lot of the wounds are self-inflicted. They, for years, evaded responsibility for the content that goes on their sites, for the harm that they did, I mean, Instagram and young girls, for example, for the Russian disinformation, for the extremism, for the hate speech. Maybe it's an insoluble problem, but I don't think they did a very good job of trying to solve it. And that is part of the legacy of Zuck and Dorsey, etc. And for those who are still running these companies, that goes on. Hey, hope you have a great weekend. Hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz on Sunday morning. We'd be delighted if you would subscribe to our podcast here. We're back here Monday with more Buzz Media. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.